Hey, so um, before we pray, and bef so before I forget, a uh, few announcements. Let's see. Um, so we have um, Monday, Thursday coming up. Be sure to be here. Um, we're also going to be outside, hopefully, this Sunday. And we'll have the cross-up like we did last year. So please be sure to bring some cut flowers um, to, to put on the cross. Last year, if you were here, we had flowers all over the cross. So be sure to bring those. Joel, what else was it? Uh, no Sunday school next week. No Sunday school next week. Just have the church service. And then uh, we're looking for someone to bring donuts next week. Are we, we don't need them next week, do we? The week, a, the, the week after. Donuts the week after. Don't make me look at you. All right. Oh, a couple of hundred? Okay. So two Sundays. What what time, Joel? What time is the Thursday service? Six thirty to seven thirty. It'll be on Thursday. Yep. Usually Monday, Thursday would be on. It's typically Thursday. Six thirty. No, 6.30 to 7.30. Everybody turn your hearing aids up. It doesn't help. Uh, let me open us in prayer. Father God, um, Lord, we are indeed grateful to be here today. We thank you, Father, for your loving kindness towards us and just pray that as uh, we study your word in Amos that you would open it up to us, that you would reveal to us the things that you would have us to learn and Father, more than just uh, study your word, that we would be doers of your word. And Lord, um, thank you for the people here. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds so that we might understand it, and that you would give us recall, that we would ponder these things as we go through our week. So Father, I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. How many of you uh, have studied Amos before? I know my home group has. So we're going to compact uh, nine chapters into, um, what, roughly uh, 45 minutes of, um, of class. So it's going to be a little, bit of a, of a little bit of a high speed. Are you able to hear me okay, by the way, everybody? Okay. So let's, um, let's get started. So why, do, why study Amos? Obviously, we have these things that I have up here. We study Amos because there are stark parallels to today, and we're going to talk about those in just a a few minutes. We study Amos because it points to the consequences of rebellion against God. But probably the most important reason is we study Amos because we know that the promises of God are realized in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we get to the end of chapter 9, we've had gloom and doom up to that point, but we're going to see how God is using all of these things, and it points to Jesus Christ. Any other reason why we would study it? In the Bible. <laughs> that's, that's probably a really good reason, isn't it? It's one of the testimonies that God would, would have some 
Psalm 119 about how he loves the testimonies. Yeah, so I mentioned that there's a lot of uh, parallels to today. And I think this is one of the reasons why we study it. So one of the things we're going to see in Amos is we're going to see a lot of materialism. Somebody read, uh, if you can, can you see that okay? If you can, would you, uh, Dave, would you read that for me, uh, Amos 6? Sure. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. That is not a compliment. What's another thing? Superficial and false worship. I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. And then corrupt leadership. We're going to see a lot of that as we go through Amos. The king, the priests, the courts, the prophets, the wealthy... All of the institutions and the people were all corrupt. That guy looked corrupt. (laughs) (laughs) They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous and who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. And then oppression. That is a big theme in Amos. So not only was all of the political system corrupt, Even the wealthy were oppressing the poor, and they thought nothing of it. It says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor and who crush the needy. So is this the end of the story? I mean, what we've seen there? As I said earlier, you're going to have to wait to chapter 9. It's not the end of the story. So let's look at some historical background. How did Israel get to this point? Would someone read this for me? So there was a time, as you can, you can't really read this map, but you can see how expansive it was under David and, and Solomon. But um, Solomon didn't do right in the eyes of the Lord. Because I've studied Solomon before. He, let's see, he had uh, 700 wives, was it, and 300 concubines. 
Can you imagine how many Valentine's Day cards that would be? <laughs> Christmas presents, birthdays. I, I can't even imagine it. But the, thing he, the principal thing that he did, though, that was really grievous unto the Lord was all these, people, all these women that he married and his concubines, they brought all of their personal religious things with them. And he supported all of that. Israel had turned away from God. God was just one other God within many that they had. So the kingdom was divided. Now, God told Solomon that he would not tear it from him personally, but he would take it away from his son. He would divide it from his son, with his son. And his son, uh, Rehoboam, became king, and this happened. So in, verses, uh, in verse 1, 1, Amos gives us the time frame of his service. And we're going to see that during his time frame, the king of Judah was Uzziah, and the king of Israel was Jeroboam II. And they pretty much served during the exact same period of time. And, and as you see, they served a long time. I think Joel mentioned last week, of, uh, or maybe it was under uh, when we studied Hosea, about towards the end, kings came and went. And some of them served very little time. Was it like four kings in two years or some number like that? It was a very short period of time. But as you can see here, there was a lot of stability under these two uh, uh, kings. So in Jerusalem, obviously Jerusalem was the place of worship for uh, Judah under the, under the split system. And then in the uh, northern kingdom, or what they called Israel, was uh, Bethel and Dan and many high places where they worshipped a mixed bag. As I mentioned, they had a long period of time under these two kings. And as a result, they had a lot of stability during that time. Israel was, uh, I mean, Assyria was occupied with other conquests. They had a period of decline. By, by the way, what was a principal city within Assyria? That was in Syria, Assyria. Yeah, Assyrian. Remember that? Anybody remember Jonah? Nineveh? Remember what happened to the folks in Nineveh? It, it didn't last very long, did it? They repented, but it didn't seem to last very long. And God is going to use Assyria to uh, conquer, to carry out his will towards, um, towards Israel. But they had great military success. Uh, so we had, a, we had a period of stability, less turmoil. They weren't fighting with uh, Judah at that time. Many of the trade routes came through there, so they were able to control those, so they became very wealthy. And like I, and like I said before, Syria was in decline for a time, but also the Lord is patient. There's like a 200-year period of time from the time the kingdom was split to 722 when they're going to be taken into captivity in Assyria. The Lord is very patient. So who was Amos? 
he was definitely not famous Amos. We're going to see that. He was from Tekoa in Judah. So God sends a man from Judah up to the northern kingdom to be his prophet there. Now, if you were here last week, do you remember bald-headed Joel? Look at the flow on my Amos. Yeah, he looked good, doesn't he? He describes himself for us. He says, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. I didn't know exactly what a sycamore fig was. Uh, down here we just have common figs, and there's maybe a lot of different varieties. Um, a sycamore fig, as I looked it up, is just a smaller version of the common fig. That was the best I could get for that. So he, he was really just uh, an agricultural kind of guy. Um, he, he says he was not a prophet's son. You know, um, th there were prophet schools, and he wasn't from that. He just, God just took and chose a pretty common guy to, um, to be his prophet in the, to the northern kingdom. And he was not welcome. There was a priest there in Bethel. We don't know much about him, but the priest in Bethel uh, wanted him to go away. And he says, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. Go away. He's hearing these sermons that's being preached but they are not in any way influencing him. He just sees this guy as a nuisance. So let's look at the uh, condition of Israel at this particular time just before we delve into the, the uh, themes. Any of you ever done this? Those Cheetos? Yeah, you know, I, I tried to figure out if they were Cheetos or fries or something. I'm not, I'm not real sure. But that's the epitome of uh, laziness, right? So as you read Amos, and those of you who have said it, you had to, you had to see these things. You have, to, you have to see that they had become complacent. They had this long period of stability. Uh, they were complacent. They were spiritually lazy. And I think uh, when we talked about these parallels to today... As we look at these particular things, be thinking about where we are. And does Amos apply to us today? It absolutely does. They were hypocritical. And idolatry was rampant. So when the kingdom was divided, and you had Rehoboam in the south, and you had Jeroboam in the north, Jeroboam pretty shrewd guy, said, hey, if these people continue to go down to Jerusalem, they may want to stick with Judah. So he needed to come up with an alternative, and he did. So he created these temples in, in uh, Bethel and in Dan, and that was so people didn't have to travel very far. you got to remember, Bethel is not very far from Jerusalem, so it wouldn't be such a long trek to, uh, to go down there. 
and he created these golden calves. What is it with golden calves? Have we heard of that before? Yeah, we sure have. But uh, he, he put golden calves there, built altars. They'd do sacrifices there. It was very convenient. The principal reason was to keep them from returning back to Judah. By the way, if you got a question, stop me, because I know you are anyway. Frank, were you going to make a comment? Yeah, I was going to say, what, didn't he live in Egypt for a while? So before, yeah, um, uh, Solomon wanted to kill him. So he thought it best not to be there. And so um, he, he did return. When the kingdom is going to, when God is going to split the kingdom, Jeroboam returns. See, Rehoboam had actually had wise counsel. He had some older guys that gave him counsel and told him not to do this. So the issue was the Israelites came to him and said, hey, the burden of your father was killing us, breaking our backs. So the older guy said, lighten up, lighten up. But he wouldn't listen to them. He went to his friends, same kind of age. They told him, no, lay the lash to them. Instead of a whip, be like a scorpion, I believe was kind of the, the way that went. Whose advice does he take? He takes his friends who did not give him wise counsel. And so that's how Jeroboam, God brings Jeroboam onto the scene. No, and, and Jeroboam did not listen. He immediately, he was a wicked king from the get-go. And so as, as the leadership goes, what happens? So goes the nation. And that's what is happening uh, in Israel. Um, mistreatment of the poor is commonplace. That is a big thing that we're going to look at as we go along in Amos. You know, um, there's numerous people th that have used Amos when they have preached sermons, when they have uh, uh, brought up social justice issues. And one of them was Martin Luther King in his I Have a Dream speech. He quoted Amos chapter 5, verse 24, where he says, But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Further, they had the appearance of godliness. So the appearance of godliness, they're playing at it. They're playing like they're godly people. They're playing both sides, if you will, but without the heart of godliness. In 2 Timothy, Paul says pretty much the exact same thing about that. The people have the appearance of godliness without the heart of godliness. What did Solomon say? There's nothing new under the sun. And so we're talking at least uh, 700 plus years later, Paul is saying essentially the same thing about the people in Ephesus. They've taken their favored position 
for granted. They don't need God. Everything is going great. They're not in wars. The economy is wonderful. They don't need God, and so they've taken that favored position for granted. God is, is blessing them and is not requiring anything of them. Sounds like a really good deal, right? And they have forsaken their covenant relationship with God to follow after other gods. Would somebody read this one for me? Anyone? The three transgressions of Israel and four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into some girl so that my holy name. A lot of oppression there, and they've broken the covenant with God. God has been gracious to them, and he's been tremendously patient. And, and they've been given opportunity after opportunity to repent. Even with Amos, is, there's going to be some opportunity there. If you've been coming for a time, you've seen this. David's favorite slide. So I thought I would explain Amos using this slide. So there's some stuff going on over here, more here, and it wraps up over here. Is that about well it? Done. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. But I knew he liked it, so I, I did that just for him. I'm getting new glasses soon, so... Anyway... So what's the overarching theme of Amos? And it's that Israel and the surrounding nations are about to be violently judged. But as I said before, it's going to close out with hope. Restoration. Just like the other prophets. But we've got a lot to, to, um, that's going to happen in the interim. At the very beginning, it says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Well, Carmel, that name means park or garden. It was a lush area. But the breath of the lion... Who, who would this lion be from Jerusalem? Yes, yeah, the lion of, of Judah. Anyway... Um, so it means Parker Garden. It's a fruitful field. It was a very lush area. But when this lion roars, it's going to wither and become desolate. So this is, this is how I looked at it. Amos can be broken down into three distinct sections and then a, and then a closing. So judgment of the nations in chapters 1 through 2, charges against Israel in 3 through 6. And uh, seven through part, halfway through nine is going to be the visions of Amos. And then we're going to close out chapter nine with restoration and blessings. Judgment. 
You know how an orchestra many times will build to a crescendo? Well, what we're going to see as we go through these judgments, in, in the way I viewed it, is it's going to build to a crescendo, and when we get to Israel, it's going to be the climax. And if you're the hearer of what's being proclaimed here, the uh, pronouncement of Amos, then your attention is going to be fixed on the enormity of the guilt and the punishment that's going to be brought down on these people. Now, you remember, he's gonna, we're going to go through these uh, sequentially in just, a, in just a moment, and you will see how it's going to build. And if you're Israel, if you're there, if you're the leadership, if you're Amaziah, if you're hearing these things, you're, you're going to see how it builds to you going to be some curiosity that builds before the prophetic hammer drops on Israel. Starts off with Damascus, Syria, Syria. Syria had, has always been a thorn in the side of Israel, as has been Gaza. So think of Syria to the north, immediately adjacent to the north. Just kind of keep in your mind as we go where these places are located and what the significance of that is. And think about it. Why, why is Amos spending his time on the punishment of these nations? Damascus to the north, Gaza, that's Philistia, down to the southeast, I mean southwest, excuse me. Tyre is located in the northwest. Now, Gaza and Damascus both have been a thorn in the side of uh, Israel forever, right? They have caused a lot of problem. Tyre to the north. What do we know about Tyre? What's significant about Tyre? They're in the northwest. Uh, what, what good did they do? Yeah, so they were, they were really helpful in building the temple, right? They were sometimes allies. Tyre had made a covenant that, um, which basically was going to bind them with Israel. But they broke that covenant. So they were sometimes allies with Israel. Then what do we know about Edom and Ammon and Moab? So we've got, we've got them on the east and the southeast, they're blood relatives. Edom is who? Esau. And so Ammon and Moab are? Lot? They're, they're, they're uh, from Lot. They're blood relatives. And then finally we come to Judah, to the south. So we've been the north, west, east, south. Now, wait a minute. If you're hearing this, and, and so you started off with Damascus and Gaza who have tormented them forever, what? You may be going, yeah, yeah, right? Give it to them. And then you get to Tyre. They've been a sometime ally. And then you get closer to home with blood relatives. And then you get real close to home. Who's, who's a nearer relative than Judah? Bullseye. Israel is in the is in the crosshairs. If you think about it, these nations form a ring around Israel, as it and then it is drawn into them. So they have no place to run, no place to hide. Now, 
You might think that hearing this, you would repent. But do they? No, they don't. So, Amos, he has, he has told them these things. They haven't repented. And he's going to tell them some messages. So we're going to transition now to chapters 3 through 6. He's going to start off in, to telling them these prophet, prophetic messages. And it's going to be, hear this word. Big difference between just hearing it and doing anything about it. And then it's also, uh, that hear this word is emphatic. It's like, listen up. But do they? They may hear it. And then he's going to, woe to you, or woe to those. So it's hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, like a funeral dirge. And then further messages against Israel. Anybody recognize this guy? Eeyore. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. I mean, there's people that's actively, apparently, desiring the day of the Lord. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Um, Samaria, they considered to be impenetrable, but it wasn't. In chapter 3, divine punishment is announced. Israel's chosen position did not entitle them to rebel. They, God was not going to permit them to rebel and sin with impunity. They were to be exactly the opposite, a holy people. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. They have inevitable and irrevocable, irrevocable punishment coming. So in, a, it, there, in chapter 3, there's a series of rhetorical questions that progress from the lesser to the greater. So in other words, the second one can't happen if the first one doesn't occur. So they're inseparably linked with each other. For example... In Amos 3, 6b, it says, disaster come to a, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And then we have a metaphorical summons to pagan nations to witness what is happening in Israel. He calls on Egypt and he calls on Philistia to come and witness what is going on in Israel? Now, that seems odd on the surface, right? Because these nations, Egypt and Philistia, are no strangers to uh, depravity and injustice. They, they are masters at oppression. But yet, they're going to be, if ironically, astonished at the level of depravity, oppression, injustice that they see take place in Israel. If that's any indication of how bad it was, um, it's, it's bad. So what's the Lord's indictment? 
They do not know how to do right. And then uh, chapter 3 finishes up with um, punishment is confirmed. Not only will individuals be destroyed, but also all of the systems, whether it's uh, political, economic, religious, the entire structure of Israel is going to be destroyed. That on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel. Remember, Bethel is the principal uh, place of worship along with um, Dan. Talk about that more. Uh, I wasn't sure exactly what a cow of Bashan looked like. This was the best I could do. They, it was, they lived in a lush area. Uh, this is an indictment of the social and religious sin. Hear the, this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy. It was a wealthy area. And this, this imagery here, um, they're, they're going to be, they, they, they're fat, but they're not going to be. It's a perversion of religious life. They had a mixture of Jehovah God and all of these other gods. You know, it doesn't say it in Amos, but I think it's in uh, 2 Kings chapter 17. It gives you a a summary of uh, what's going on there. They're even sacrificing their children to this God, Molech. There was, there was nothing too, too bad for them. It says, Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. By, by the way, um, what, what do you remember about Bethel? What's significant about Bethel? Why choose Bethel as the site to put your temple for the northern kingdom? No. I think that's where Jacob had his dream. And the angels go up and down the ladder. And he said, This is the house of God. This is where God is coming. Yeah, exactly. It, it's a holy site for the Jews. Now, what is, so we've got Bethel. If you break it down, what does Bethel mean? L on the end. House of bread. L. L. House of God. House of God. Well, why not pick the house of God for where you put the temple? Correct? Again, uh, pretty shrewd. Past divine calamities brought no repentance. I gave you lack of bread. I withheld the rain, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. It didn't matter what the Lord did, they would not return. And then there's no hope for a hardened, stiff-necked people. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So that's chapter 4. The principal message of chapter 4 is that they would have, they could have had it all. God offered them everything. Yet their desire was to have blessings without obedience. 
and I think it's the true heart of man that is on display. Uh, materialism and all the other, other things. Chapter 5 tells them to lament. You know, um, I don't know if these people were paid or not, but there was apparently people who were gifted or skilled in laments, and particularly as a, as a funeral lament, and they would wail. And so it says, Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. However, in chapter 5, there is still a glimmer of hope. In Amos 5.14, famous 5.4, and then it kind of, it repeats itself in 5.14. It says, seek me and live. And then in 5.14, seek good and not evil that you may live. God is, God is always reaching out there, reaching out. Seek me and live. And then five, continuing, is an indictment of injustices. They hate him who tells the truth. They trample on the poor and exact unjust taxes. And here's what Amos prophesies about that. O oh, you who turn justice to wormwood, bitter, that's bitterness, and cast down righteousness to the earth. Prosperity will be replaced by grief. They've got everything, at least the rich do. They're getting it on the back of the poor. In all the squares there shall be wailing. In all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. And then there's the message of woe against Israel's perverted religion. <clears throat> I hate, I despise your feast, <clears throat> and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. God is not going to accept their worship. It's a false worship. And in chapter 5, the punishment is revealed. Exile. I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. The Lord's going to use Assyria to take them into exile. I just want to, I just noticed something, I don't know if it's right or not, but at the end of Amos 5.16, after he talks about the wailing that was coming, and the Lord says, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. The contrast being on my mind with the exodus, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's almost like, no, I'm not going to pass over you. I'm going to come right through you with my destruction. It, that, is, that is exactly, you're exactly correct. Uh, in Exodus, at the Passover, he passed over them, saved them, but not this time, right? Not this time. He, that would be a scary thing to know that the Lord is going to pass among you. A reprimand to the entire nation for their unrighteousness and complacent pride. They have an arrogant complacency 
Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. O you who put far away the day of the disaster and bring near the seat of violence. It's okay if you destroy all these other countries, but we have an impenetrable fortress here. We're, we're comfortable. Um, do, do what you will. They had a luxurious indulgence. I can't even imagine a bed of ivory. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. There you have opulent luxuries. This is the wealthy. It is not the poor. They're using the court systems to take from the poor. The wealthy are complicit with the political and the, um, the court systems and the religious systems, and they are able to take more and more from them. They hire people to do work for them and then refuse to pay them, accusing them of cheating them, and they get judgments against them. But what's coming is complete devastation. For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. Lebo Hamath is in the south, I believe, and Arabah is the far north. So from the northern tip to the southern tip, you're going to be pursued. And that's going to happen at the hands of Assyria. Final destruction is going to be in 722. Just of note of interest to you, you know, they had this sense that Samaria was impenetrable. It was mountainous, right? So it took Assyria actually three years of siege to take them, to take Samaria, just because of how fortified it was. But they do. When God wills it, it's going to happen. Well, uh, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, Amos was prophesying in about 750. Uh, theologians, d- depending upon their view of it, he didn't prophesy a long time, uh, but 750-ish to maybe, uh, could be down to 740. So, what, 30 to 20, 20 to 30 years. It's, it's going to be something like that. Anybody got another thought on chapters 3 through 6? I mean, we've laid out a lot of things that's going to happen with a glimmer of hope in there. So then Amos has some visions, and and they're not pretty. So let's talk about those. Chapter 7 through 8. One of the things we're going to see in the first two visions is that these these, uh, judgments that uh, God is showing Amos, uh, Amos is going to be able to avert them through intercession by praying to God. So we have the first one that's going to be all the crops are going to be destroyed by locusts. Now, in that part of the world, Africa and and all up through, locusts is a very common thing. And when they come through, I pulled up a lot of pictures of locusts in different areas, and most of the pictures were out of, out of uh, northern Africa, uh, tremendous masses. I know we, have, we can have an outbreak here, too. 
So one was a uh, crop destruction by locusts. <clears throat> the other one was a vision of devastating fire. Fire would, what the locusts didn't get, fire would burn. <clears throat> In other words, there would be nothing. It would be barren. Oh, Lord God, please forgive. This is his, his intercession for the people. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. In those two visions of judgment, his intercession caused the Lord to relent. Now, I've got a question for you. Note how Amos appeals to God's mercy using the name of Jacob to refer to Israel. Why might he refer to Jacob at this particular point? Okay. Any other thoughts? I have a, says, I'm, the, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's part of God's name. Um, remember um, when he was at Bethel? Tim, I think you mentioned that. Um, he made some promises, didn't he? I think I, here, here's the conclusion that I came, came down to was by using the name Jacob, he is reminding God of the promises he made to Jacob at Bethel. Great nation, all, all, the, all the promises that God made. Now, does God not keep his promises? He absolutely keeps all of his promises. I think, I think Jacob... Remember, remember when Abraham was talking about not destroying Sodom and Gomorrah and he was making these appeals to him? Uh, God, I think... I think that Amos is doing the, the same kind of thing, reminding God of the promises that he made. Now, God doesn't need to be reminded, but I think that's what he was, he was doing. So that was kind of the way I took that. Well, Gil, um, Israel is, is guilty of all these things, and they do deserve all of this punishment, but God relents. But God relents, but the ultimate punishment is not going to be changed. So even though he was able through intercession to avert those, uh, those particular punishments, the other three, God doesn't even give... Amos the opportunity to appeal to him. He just tells him straight up, here's what's going to happen. Um, can you tell that that's a plumb line? Or, you know, if people build, plumb lines are still in use today. They're, they're very useful uh, instruments of construction. So he has a plumb line. In this vision, he shows Amos a plumb line. But, they are, but we're not given a lot of detail about that particular one. It's just kind of a matter-of-fact thing. Now, if you know, what you know about <clears throat> plumb lines is if you're building something and you want to make sure that it's vertical, you can use a plumb line, and it's going to tell you if it's vertical. But as much as it's used in construction, it could also be used to determine if something needs to be destroyed. 
or torn down. If it is out of plumb, you've got a problem, don't you? It's not vertical. And I think that's more the sense that uh, we've got here is that Israel is out of plumb and needs to be torn down. So Israel has been judged and all of its institutions and individual actions have been found to be out of plumb, so they must be torn down. And like I said before, in this vision, God does not give Amos the opportunity to appeal to him, to plead their case. Amos doesn't even try. Interestingly enough, right after that particular vision, there is a confrontation with Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. He accuses um, Amos of some things. So Amos is apparently uh, challenged uh, by him. He's hearing what Amos has said. He's hearing these sermons. He's hearing what's been preached. He's hearing these judgments that's being proclaimed. And then it says, Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. So he's trying to get the king to do something about Amos. Amaziah, Amaziah says, go home. Here's what Amos has to say about that. I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So in essence, Amos is saying, are you going to kick out the Lord God of Israel who sent me? As a result, Amaziah and his family come under the wrath of God. Does anybody remember what happened to Amaziah's uh, family? Total, total destruction. His wife was sent into prostitution in the city. Kids were killed by the sword. He didn't die by, he didn't die by the sword. He, had to, he went into exile. Yes. It would have been. It would have been fine. Sure. And that's, you know, that's my life. If I paid attention to all the little things in my business, otherwise the big stuff is going to be whack. Right. So I'm going to pick it up a little bit. We only have a, a few minutes. So the next one is a vision of a basket of summer fruit. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And then he asked Amos, what, what is this? And he says, it's a basket of summer fruit. Well, summer fruit was the last and ripest of the food crop. The point is Israel is ripe for the harvest. Divine judgment is upon them. 
and this grand and victorious day of the Lord that they're looking forward to is instead going to be a terrible day of reckoning. And then the Lord in the final one is standing by the altar at Bethel. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and He said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. The capital is supporting the weight and it's going to come crashing down. So there's no place to hide from the ensuing destruction. doesn't matter. It said, If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. You know, if you think about the altar of Israel, it had always been a place of reconciliation, right? But not anymore. Uh, God is not going to show them any mercy because it's not, a, it's not a place, it's not a godly place anymore. Now, I want to make sure we cover this. Give me just a couple more minutes. Restoration. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. <clears throat> you know, every promise is made to David, to Solomon, that there was always going to be a king in the lineage. So let's look at Jesus in Amos. So this booth of David had fallen. God made a promise that one would come from the lineage of David and establish his rule forever. Here's what Jesus said in Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He is the fulfillment of that. If you go back into Amos, you will also see that the Gentiles are going to be brought in, even in the book of Amos, because it talks about bringing in even Edom. And when Paul goes to the Jerusalem council, James quotes Amos to justify the bringing in of the Gentiles. Jesus is going to make all of this happened. He's the fulfillment of this res, uh, restoration. Without Jesus' finished work, there would be no appeasement of God's wrath. It would still be poured out just like we're seeing here in Amos because, folks, we are no different. Our heart is no different. The substance and the form of our sins may, may be different looking than theirs, but it's still an affront to God in the same way. And without Jesus' being our high priest instead of Amaziah, there would be no one making intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And we are out of time so we really don't have time for questions and answers but what I was going to do anyway was they were going to ask the questions and you folks were going to give the answers <laughs> let me um, David would you close us in prayer sure. Father in heaven we thank you so much for Jesus yep. <clears throat> we thank you for his intercession and we thank you for the new covenant and we thank you for your everlasting mercy and though you chasten us we will never be punished because Jesus is punished in our place mm -hmm. God we worship you through Jesus and the Holy Spirit and we pray that you prepare us as we go to worship you 
preaching the gospel to us this morning and reviving our hearts in your love and your forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And please make us more like Jesus by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for your